And today we're going to look at our promise-making, promise-keeping God. That we serve a God that both makes promises and keeps promises. And I know that that's something that we all have issues with. I know you've probably made a promise that you've broken. Some big promises, some little promises. I know often whenever Hannah asks me to pick up milk on the way home from work, I always break that promise because I always forget. Some promises are bigger to be broken, some are smaller. Forgetting to pick up milk is a small promise. One big promise that I broke was in high school. I had a high school sweetheart, and I bought her a promise ring. I'm convinced that's just the way that jewelers sell, sell rings and make money. But I bought my girlfriend a promise ring that I eventually broke to her whenever I broke her heart and broke up with her after two years of dating. And it was a very traumatic experience. Um, and now that ring is worthless, right? The promise that I made, I broke. And, um, you know, at high school, sweetheart, that's one thing. A marriage, right, is something much more different. That's a promise that we make and we keep for eternity. Because that is a picture of the promise that God made to us, that he would never leave us nor forsake us. That is what marriage is a picture of, God's love for us through Jesus. And that is the promise-making, promise-keeping that we're going to look at today in the book of Acts. Thankfully, God does not treat us like my high school um, sweetheart or, or high school relationship. He doesn't break it off for us. And so today, we're going to be in Acts 13. Starting in verse 13, we're going to read through um, the story of Paul and Barnabas as they continue to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. If you remember last uh, Sunday, um, we saw Paul, Paul and Barnabas leaving for Cyprus to start what's called their first missionary journey. So they're starting off to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And now this is the second part of that journey that we're going to get with them in verse 13. And we're going to read through all this. It's a, it's a good chunk here, so um, just follow along as you can, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. This is what it says in verse uh, 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But then when they went on from Perga, and um, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took place about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. 
Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So Paul is just working through sort of the history of God's work in the lives and the history of the people of Israel up until Jesus. Verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which I read every Sabbath, fulfilled them, these, these prophets, by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up uh, with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Amen. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogues broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as I spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole uh, region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is a sermon from Paul. And it's actually his first sermon that we hear from this guy. We've seen a few sermons in the book of Acts. We saw a sermon from Peter at Pentecost. We saw another sermon whenever Peter healed the lame beggar. We saw a sermon from Stephen right before he was crucified. Uh, sorry, not crucified, before he was stoned. And now we see a sermon, and we see another sermon from Peter. Now we see a sermon here from Paul. And if you 
want to, you can actually go back and look at what Paul says and compare it to what Peter says and compare it to what Stephen says, and it actually lines up fairly well with what um, these other sermons we have seen. And so what we're going to look at today is that Paul focuses on the promise-making and the promise-keeping God that they all know and love and serve. And how that promise-making and promise-keeping finds its fulfillment in Jesus. If you remember, we read 2 Corinthians 1, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. But what does that mean? How does that work out? That's what we're going to look at today. Okay, And so just to establish the context of what's going on, i got a picture here of... Um, um, i got a picture here in the next slide. Yeah, thank you. There we go. Um, to establish the context of what's going on, um, Paul and Barnabas were in on the island of Cyprus. Okay, that's circled there in Paphos. And they travel up to Turkey, modern-day Turkey, up to Antioch. Okay, and it's confusing because they came from Antioch in Syria and wind up in a different Antioch in Pisidian. Okay, two different Antiochs, so don't be confused. So they're in, in the top left. That's where they're at right now. And they go there and immediately go to um, a synagogue to preach. That's what, that's what we see in Acts 13 to 16. And they are invited by the rulers of the synagogue. Paul is, if, and the guy says, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, go ahead and say it. So Paul stands up and he gives this word of encouragement and I would say it's much more than a word of encouragement, it's a word of salvation. Paul is actually given sort of a softball lobbed up to him, and the guy says, all right, tell us whatever you want. And Paul says, okay, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And so he jumps in to this sermon that we see here. And the first thing we're going to see from this sermon and what we're going to learn about our God and the God of Paul, since we worship the same God, is that our God is a God that makes promises. And not just little promises, like getting milk on the way home, which I inevitably break every time, but big promises. Our God is a God that makes very big promises. Life-changing promises. Nation-building promises. Future-shaping promises promises. That is how our God works. And Paul initially starts out by reminding the people that this is the God that they serve. He reminds them of the promises of God. And so we're going to actually work through and look at three specific promises that God has made to Israel that Peter here reminds uh, that Paul here reminds them of. And they all have to deal they're all promises made to a guy named Abraham. Okay, and you guys probably know Abraham. Abraham is the father of Israel. He is the one that God made. Really, every promise that God makes finds its way first. Um, well, you could argue there. But it finds its way first in this man, Abraham. And the first promise that God made to Abraham was that his people would be slaves in Egypt, but then would be freed. This is what it says in verse 17. This is from the sermon um, that Paul that's Paul's giving in verse 17. It says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt 
and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Paul is saying that God made a promise that Israel would find freedom. So where is that promise? If you go back to Genesis 15, Genesis 15, this is God speaking to Abraham. This happened thousands of years before. Look at what God says to Abraham, or Abraham at this time. This is what God says. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. That's Egypt. That's Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Very long time, right? How long have we been a, a country, right? Not that long. They will be slaves, afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. It's crazy. God makes a promise to Abraham that his people, that he doesn't even have yet, will be slaves, but that God will bring them freedom. And that's exactly what God does. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. We know the story. He sends Moses to go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, let my people go. The ten plagues happen. They come to the Red Sea. They march through the Red Sea. It says on dry ground, they march through the Red Sea and get to Mount Sinai where they meet with God. God made a promise to Abraham that his people would be enslaved, but that he would bring freedom. And that's exactly what God did. What's the second promise that God makes in this sermon that Paul's giving? The second promise that God makes is that he will give them land, the promised land, land flowing with milk and honey. That's what we see in verse 18 and 19. This is what it says. Again, this is going back to Paul's sermon. It says, And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. God promised to Abraham that he would give him a land of his own possession, what we know as the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is what God said. Here's the promise in Genesis 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. There's the promise. Here's our promise-making God. And then after they get the land, fast forward hundreds of years to the time of Joshua, whenever they go in and take the promised land, this is what Joshua writes. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and they settled there. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Isn't that cool? God made the promise to give freedom. God made the promise to give land, and he came through on those promises. And then finally, the third promise we see that God gave in Paul's sermon is he promised to give them a king. He promised to give them a king, going back to verse 22, 21 and 22. This is what it says. Then they asked for a king. This is Israel, asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. God had promised to give Israel a king, and he made that promise again to Abraham. Genesis 17, 6, here's the promise. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. God promised to bring kings from the line of Abraham. 
And that is exactly what God did in King David. He brought the greatest king Israel ever saw, King David. So working through this, considering all of this, it is evident that the God of the Bible is a promise-making God. That's how he works. That's how he has moved history along. He promises freedom. He promises land. He promises a king. And he delivers on all of them. Promise-making, promise-keeping, promise-making, promise-keeping. Now, the question is, why do these promises matter? And why does he choose to do it that way? Why has he worked through history, through promise-making, promise-keeping, and what is Paul's point in all of this? Well, as we're going to see, it matters, and why he does it this way, because all of these promises point to a greater promise. All All of this making, keeping, trajectory, moving history along are moving towards a greater promise, a greater work. And the greater promise is the promise of a Savior. The promise of Jesus. That's the greater promise. That's why he's doing what he's doing. To move us to Jesus. Because as of yet, at this time, the promise of the Savior hasn't happened yet. They haven't, that hasn't been fulfilled yet. But it's definitely been made. The promise has been made. And the promise of a Savior was made in Jeremiah 23, 5 to 6. We know the prophet Jeremiah. He lived a lot longer in the future from what the times that we had just worked through in Genesis and Joshua. Jeremiah is writing during a time of national um, catastrophe. The entire nation of Israel has been exiled by the Babylonians, or well, of Judah at the time, exiled by the Babylonians. Everyone is dying, and it's just it's terrible. You should read about it. This is the, the prophecy that Jeremiah gives. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So, so Jeremiah is saying, From the line of David, I am going to bring a righteous king, a righteous ruler, a righteous branch. He shall reign as king. He shall deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So this king, this savior, will be from the line of David. He's going to be wise. He's going to be just. He's going to be righteous. In his days, Judah will be saved. He's going to be a savior. And Israel will dwell securely. Right now, that is not how they exist. There is no safety. There is no security. They're all exiled. They don't have anything. But this, this Savior, this branch of David, is going to bring salvation. He's going to bring security. And this is the name by which he'll be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the biggest promise that God has made that he's given in Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6. The promise of a Savior. And so you can imagine between the time of this prophecy and the time of, of Paul, that hasn't happened yet. Israel's like, where the heck is our Savior? We're all dying. All of our, you know, all of our possessions have been taken away. We don't live in the promised land anymore. That's a big one. God promised to give them land. We don't live there anymore. Our whole way of life is destroyed. Where is our Savior? That's the question. If you're the promise-making, promise-keeping God, what about this promise? Going back to Paul's sermon 
verse 23, this is what Paul says. Of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. As he promised. In Jesus, Paul is saying, all the promises of God have found their fulfillment. The promise of Jeremiah 23 has come to pass. Jesus is the Savior that Jeremiah was talking about. Jesus is the righteous branch that Jeremiah had prophesied about. And what we see is that every promise God has made up until this point has led to this man, Jesus. Think about it. God promised freedom for Israel. God promised land for Israel. So whenever they became free, he gave them a place to go. God promised a king for Israel. And then from this king, he leads to the promise of a savior. The promises build on each other, and they all point to Jesus. It's like this picture. This is the Mississippi River. I think the largest river in the country. But all of these other rivers and streams and brooks all pour into the Mississippi, right? So it's the largest river, but everything leads to it, and it all empties in New Orleans, in the Gulf of Mexico. This is how the promises of God work. 2 Corinthians 1.20, if you want to go to that next slide, um, says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Does it say some of the promises of God? No, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Jesus is that Mississippi River that all of the other promises of God flow into. It's an amazing thing. If you work through all of Scripture, everything God says He's going to do, He accomplishes it in the person of Jesus Christ. And so... The question for us, and how we sort of apply that, if God has so worked in history as to unify all the keeping of his promises in the person of Jesus, then we as a church and as a people have to be centered on Jesus in everything that we do, right? If God has worked out thousands of years of promise keeping to find their yes in Jesus, then we have to find our yes in Jesus. We have to be a Christ-centered church. We have to be a Christ-centered people. We can't gather around anything else. If the Bible is centered around the cross and the resurrection, and, and that's the whole story, then we can't waste our time doing anything else. We have to be a Christ-centered church and Christ-centered people because the math doesn't work out any other way. The equation doesn't work out any other way. It just doesn't make sense any other way. If you look at how God has chosen to work in history, it doesn't make sense. So we can come to this church or really go to any church. It doesn't matter. We can sing songs. We can preach a message. We can fellowship, drink coffee, eat Wendy's awesome blueberry muffins that she made that were amazing. But if we aren't pointed to Jesus in that, and if we're not filled with the gospel, and if the end of it doesn't pour into that mighty river of Christ, 
It's not worth anything. It's not worth anything at all. We've missed it. We've missed it. We've missed the reason for any of it. We've missed, we've missed Christ. We've missed Christ. I, I remember in college, there was this guy that I knew. His name was Patrick. He was very, uh, very on fire for Christ. Just very, like, you talk to him, and he was kind of like, I wasn't sure if he was kind of messed up in the head. He wasn't messed up in the head. He wasn't, but he was just like, really like, yeah, let's do this. And we had a guy that came and spoke, and he spoke from James about taming the tongue. And the guy gave a good message, and it was like, you know, no, don't be profane your speech, and, you know, the tongue sort of moves the body, and, and you need to, you know, tame the tongue. And Patrick went, o- went up to the pastor after the sermon, and he said, hey, I, I, you know, I thank you for the sermon, but you didn't, you didn't give us Jesus. You didn't give us the gospel. You just gave us, like, tips and tricks to not swear, you know, or to, to, to speak edifying, you know, words, which is all nice and good, but without the gospel, without a changed heart, our tongues don't change, right? Jesus said it's not the stuff outside of you that, that defiles you. It's the stuff inside of you that defiles you, that leads to wrong speech, that leads to profane words, crude joking. That's what Christ said. The guy didn't give us Jesus, so he didn't give us a reason or really the ability to tame our tongue, right? So the point is this. We can't do anything for God apart from Jesus Christ. And, and I am just convinced that so many of us are living our lives day in and day out without Christ in the equation at all. If all of God's word and all of God's working and all of God's plan is centered on Jesus, but Jesus doesn't show up in the issues and the resolutions we're trying to bring to our lives, then maybe we're missing it a little bit. Maybe we're missing it a little bit. I've worked in churches where I've been so sad and really conflicted on the inside Because I felt like people were leaving our church thinking how awesome our church was, right? Man, I really love that church. The band's awesome, lights and all that stuff. And that's fine. I want people to like our church. But that's not the point of the church, right? The point of the church is for people to leave thinking, man, how awesome is this God? Man, how awesome is this Jesus? Man, how awesome is this gospel? That's the point of our gathering. That's the point of the church. So that's really the application. That's the question. Are all the tributaries of our lives and all the rivers of our lives emptying into Jesus, right? All the situations, all the, all the, the troubles, all the problems, are we, are we asking ourselves, how does Jesus fix this? How does the gospel answer this? How do we move forward with Christ and the cross and the resurrection and the gospel in mind? That's the question. And that's what Paul does. He, he reorients their thinking to see how God has moved everything to this man, Jesus. The promised one, Jesus. Amazing thing. And the question is, how are we applying that to our lives, just both individually, individually and as a church? And so that's what we see the first point. Our God is a promise making God, and he's been making promises forever. That's how he works. He makes promises. But what we're going to see in the second half is as a promise-making God, he's also a promise-keeping God. He's a God that keeps 
his promises. And that's, that's great news for us. And so moving forward, he, Paul says a little bit about John the Baptist there. Um, but he finally gets to Jesus. Jesus is the Savior that was promised. Then verse 26, I think I have all the text there. Yeah, we'll just quickly read through this to get to our second point. Okay, our God is a God now that keeps promises. And then Paul goes into the second half where he addresses the people now after working through the history. He says, Brothers, sons of the fame of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. So this is, he's addressing the Jews and then the Gentiles that believe in God, God fears. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. So we have received the message that we now preach. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So Jesus was killed by the rulers in Jerusalem, unwittingly to themselves. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So Paul, after snaking the way of history to Christ, then goes into what's called a passion narrative, where he is just talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. That's, that's the passion of Christ. And he's explaining, he kind of hits the high points, um, saying, you know, we are witnesses to this. Jesus was um, an innocent man. He was killed by the rulers of the day. He didn't deserve it. These guys were fulfilling prophecy. They didn't even realize it. He was crucified. He was resurrected. We have seen him, and we are witnesses to that truth. And then that brings him to verses 32 and 33. It says this, And we bring you the good news. It's the gospel. We love that word. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, the same promise that we saw in Jeremiah 23.5, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So the promise of God was fulfilled in the raising of Christ, which is good news. If we want to summarize that. So what he does is he's connecting the promise of God to the resurrection of Christ. Okay, The promise of God is kept and fulfilled in the resurrection. And this is good news that Jesus is alive. The resurrection is the proof, the empty tomb is the proof of God as a promise-keeping God. It's another way we can say that. And to many, this is a stumbling block. Because many people can't believe in a resurrection of a dead person. I don't know if you've had conversations with people. I know one guy we work with at health markets. He likes Jesus. He says he's a Christian. Um, loves the teaching, blah, blah, blah. I just can't get over the resurrection. I just can't, I can't believe you know, someone could rise from the dead. Another guy that I know is baptized. Uh, recently, probably a couple years ago or so. And I, he was like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, all that. But I, it's just the resurrection. I don't know. I don't know, if, I don't know if, he's, if he was resurrected. 
It's a stumbling block for people. And it's so inconceivable that even people that are receptive to Christianity want to receive what is in the word minus the empty tomb. And what Paul is saying is that is impossible. You can't have a Jesus that was not resurrected. And it's a tragedy. Because there is no fulfillment of the promise of salvation without the raising of Jesus. That's what he says. He says, we bring you good news that what God promised, he fulfilled by the raising of Christ. We can't have a promise-keeping God without a resurrected Jesus. It doesn't work. It doesn't work out. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Because what are we saved from? A life with no meaning? No. What are we saved from? Uh, Not having friends? No. What are we saved from? A boring life? No. We're saved from sin. We are saved from sin. And what does sin lead to? Sin leads to death. So if Jesus defeats sin on the cross then he'd also have to defeat death in the grave. And he did this by rising out of it, right? Prove to the world that our God is a promise-keeping God. Our God is a promise-keeping God, and he made the promise in the most unlikeliest of ways. Who in the world has ever thought that someone could rise from the dead? The one thing that we all have in common, right? That we're all going to die. That's the thing that God used as a sign for us to believe. That Jesus was who he says he was. A dead man coming back to life. And that's what we're all going to stand into account for. Really. I mean, if you really think about it. If we want to disprove Christianity, just find the body of Jesus. That's all we got to do. It is a house of cards. It, it's, all, it's like a, a massive like Jenga you know, tower and the very bottom is one Jenga, right? And all you got to do is flick the Jenga, find the body, and then the whole thing falls. That's really our faith. It's really that simple. Find the body. It's all a lie. But we haven't found the body, right? It's not there. It's empty. Praise God. We're going to celebrate that in a a couple of months. Praise God. Our God is a promise-keeping, promise-fulfilling God. Some people cannot get across that. And so for us, in applying the resurrection and applying the promise-keeping of God, our great assurance and our great hope is that this did indeed happen. For For us who believe that the body isn't there, that the tomb is empty. But it's not just Jesus, for us who believe, it's not just Jesus that is risen, but it's also us who have risen. The resurrection is a promise, not just of Christ's resurrection, but also our resurrection. It's not just a historical fact, but it is an experienced reality for us. Romans 6, verse 4, this is what it says. It says, we were buried, therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The resurrection is a promise to us that just as Jesus died, so we die, 
And just as Jesus comes to new life, so we too come to new life. That's the promise. The old way of life is gone. The new way of life is here. And it's a new way of life found in Jesus Christ. I just had a conversation recently with a friend who, um, he's a a believer. It's Alex. You guys know. Do you guys know? You guys know Alex? Does anyone know? You don't know. You guys know? No, you don't know. Wendy and Randy are the only ones that know Alex. He's a great guy. Anyways, um, so he has a friend that is um, struggling with gender identity, okay, that, that whole thing. And he was playing devil's advocate, not that he believed what I'm about to say, but we're just having the conversation. And the question he asked was, does God really expect me to change? It's a question. If I'm going to come to Jesus and, and read about all this, you know, does God really expect me to change who I feel on the inside? And what I said is, no, it's much more extreme than that. God expects you to die to who you are. That's what he expects you to do. God expects you to die. I mean, what, is, what do we, what do we, what Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. That is the crucifixion. And that is the promise of the resurrection. You die and then you gain a new life. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The promise of the resurrection is a promise to us that just as Christ rose, so we will rise. The problem is this. We don't want to die That's the problem. We don't want to die. Because the promise of new life isn't as enticing as the promise of the life we have now in our sin. And if that's the case, then we don't want the promise of God. We don't want the promise of God. And that's the tension that we're at. That's the position we're at in this world. Are we willing to take on the life of Christ, and die to ourselves for a much better life than the one we're having now. And what we're going to see is that it's only by the working of God through the Holy Spirit in us to open up our eyes, to want the resurrection, to want that promise to be kept in us. And so Paul here is laying out these truths to the people. He's pointing them to Jesus. He's calling them to die to themselves, to find new life in him. He's pointing to, he points uh, in this next half, we're not going to work through this little section, but he points them to scripture, the fulfillment of all these things in David. And then finally we get to verse 38 and he brings all this stuff to them. And he says, okay, this is everything that I've been preaching to you. Now, what are you going to do with it? Verse 38, it says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Okay, it's proclaimed to you. It's, it's, all these promises have been happening, but now it's coming to you, this forgiveness. Verse 39, And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The chain of sin that we have to work to be right with God We're never going to be able to do that because we're all jacked up in our own way. We can be freed from that through Jesus. 
Verse 40, beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets shall come to you. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. He's laying it out and says, okay, what are you going to believe? Are you going to believe this or not? And he offers this warning to them. Be wary, beware of unbelief. Of unbelief. And that is it. That God makes a promise. That God keeps a promise. What are we going to do with it? How are we going to respond to that? Are we going to believe it? Or are we not going to believe it? And that brings us to our third and final point. Are we a people who will believe in the God who makes and keeps promises? So how do the people respond? Well, verse 42 says that the people went out and they begged that these things should be told them the next Sabbath. So they liked it. Like, wow, this is awesome. We didn't realize any of this stuff. Can you come back and tell us again? And so Paul and Barnabas were like, yeah, sure, we can do that. That's great. So verse 44, it says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So the first time, it probably had more people we have here today, but, you know, a room full of people. The second time, the whole city came. That's amazing. And these are Gentiles. These are pagans, right? These aren't even, these aren't Jews. These aren't God-fearing Gentiles. These are pagans. But the word got out there of this preaching of full forgiveness, being freed from the law. That is a great word for us, right? We're freed from the law. You don't gotta, you can't work to be saved. You don't have to work to be saved. You don't have to do your Hail Marys and all the other stuff you want to do. It doesn't matter. You're freed from the law. So everyone comes. The gospel attracts everyone because it is a faith in a person. It's a relationship. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not where you're born, it's not your lineage, it's not, um, you know, if you believe the right thing um, in that, you know, I, I do this, 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 I go this time every week, blah, blah, blah. It's relationship with Jesus. That's what it is. And so everyone's attracted to it in verse 44. But then, verse 45, there's some issues. Now that these Gentiles were coming, the Jews weren't really liking it. It says, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. The, peop, the most religious people were the ones who were fighting against God, what God wanted to do. Right, <laughs> The people that knew the word better than everybody else. The people that on the outside seemed to have it most together. The ones that were fighting against what God was trying to do. And so what we see in the response is that it's a mixed bag. Some people respond, some people don't respond. The people farthest from God were the most receptive. The people closest to God were the most opposed. And so what Paul and Barnabas do is they respond. They say, look, if you guys aren't going to believe it, we're going to go to the Gentiles. We're going to go to the people that have no conception of any of this, that have no background in any of this. They don't know heads or tails from any of this. We're going to preach to those guys. And it's a fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah said, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so the mandate that Jesus gave in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth is filled. 
So the, the Gentiles hearing this, it says in verse 40, uh, 48, it says that they began rejoicing, glorifying the word, uh, glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So will people believe? Will people believe this promise-making, promise-keeping God that we serve? And the answer is, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it's a mixed bag. Some people will, some people don't. Often the ones you think most likely won't wind up believing. Some that you think will wind up not believing. But the point that we need to take is that it's not up to us for people to believe or not. I don't control belief. What does it say? Verse 38. It says, as many who were appointed to eternal life believed. What then is the prerequisite to belief? Well, it seems to be the sovereignty of God. Who's do, doing the appointing of belief? It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who's doing the appointing? It would have to be God. God is the one that appoints for salvation. And then people believe. People believe. And that's a whole different sermon. That's like election, predestination. People have like killed each other over this, which is sad. We, can't have, we could get into that. But suffice it to say that God is sovereign in salvation. Okay? It is not up to me or you. That's God's job. Our job is to faithfully preach the gospel. Our job is to make big promises, the same promises that God made, and then let him fulfill them. And the big promise is this, that you can be saved from your sin. That's the greatest promise of all. Let's make those promises to people and show them that they were kept in the man, Jesus Christ. Because we do have good news. We have great news. We have the best news ever. That the worst possible thing, the worst possible situation that you could ever be in, that you're a sinner separated from God, His wrath on you justly, that that sin and wrath is taken away in the person of Jesus. That is good news. That all the promises of God find their yes in him. And so for you today, I just want to build you up in that promise. I want to encourage you to think, okay, my life and the things in my life, is Jesus the final answer in the equation of those issues? Is he a part of that whole calculus at all? And am I promising those promises to people, the greater promise of salvation, pointing people to Christ? We have to be a God, Christ, gospel-centered church, a Christ-centered people, a gospel-centered people, and we've got to live it out. And that's the message that we see today from Paul and Barnabas. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, I just want to thank you, God, um, just for your word that brings clarity this is the message that was preached it's a message of promise making and promise keeping and I just think about the messages that are preached in churches Lord today and a lot of promises are made that God is not made and a lot of promises are made to people that God never even spoke about. And it's a distraction from the biggest promise made and the biggest promise kept, that of salvation. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that speak and preach 
those promises, because those are the things that people need to hear. Those are the truths that people need to be confronted with, Lord. Those are the things that people need to dwell on. Jesus is the one that we need to point people to. The salvation found in his name. And so I, I just ask God that we would do that, that we would be centered on Christ and the things that we want to do as a church would bring people into a relationship with him, Lord. We have Easter coming up, preparing for that. We have this event in Gorham, the marketplace coming up, an opportunity to share the gospel with people, to have these conversations. Most people aren't even thinking about this. Lord, give us grace before our hearers that they would hear these things, Lord. I just want to pray over that. I want to pray the result of the town of Antioch in Pisidian, that the entire city came out to hear the next week, Lord. May the entire city come out to hear in our day. May that whole message go out from this Sunday, and next Sunday the whole city's here. That's not always the case. You did send Paul and Barnabas out to them, so may we also be sent out as well, Lord. So I just want to pray over that. I um, want to thank you for your word that sets us straight and ask that you would just fill us up, Lord, with your spirit and your work and your gospel and um, just so needy of, of you, God, in all that we do, Lord. So I thank you. I lift up these things all in the name of Jesus, Lord. We love you and thank you for him. Amen.